the only place that I know that that happened, at least in my knowledge, was uh, the second course at Sand Valley that I ended up doing called Mammoth Dunes. And in that scenario, uh, Mike Kaiser invited me, Tom Doak, and Dave Axland, uh, and Rod Whitman to each submit proposals, designs. Mm -hmm. And then Mike and his uh, crew basically did a bake-off and uh and we won that uh, but that's not common uh, that is not common i i think huh. i think the reason that it happened was because it was mike kaiser uh i think if if a developer without mike's gravitas was to call you know me and bill and gill and talk you know the people you mentioned and said hey i want you each to do a design and i'm gonna pick i think I think we would all probably politely decline. Welcome back to the Golfer's Journal podcast presented by Titleist, the number one ball in golf. My name's Tom Coyne. Thanks so much for joining us. The number one ball in golf. We know it's the number one ball in golf, but I've got a really special place in my heart right now for that Titleist TSR driver. Uh, I'm finding pretty cool, exciting new places. Uh, on the golf course, good places, not the places you don't want to find, places that I'd always wanted to find before. Uh, and I have to thank the TSR for that. I mean, the thing is just fast. Uh, I played yesterday at Waynesboro and did hit some approaches from places that I, I, I'd not visited before. And that's just, that's a lot of fun. Hope you got in on the Waynesboro event as well. If not, get on the wait list. Um, it's, it's, it's the places looking great. Uh, but my buddy Brendan recently got fit for his TSR, was texting me his numbers and some OMGs and various um, celebratory emojis. So it's cool. Get to Titleist.com. Look for fitting in your area. Get fit today. Get it in. Get that speed in your bag. Um, really excited about today's podcast. Great friend of the Golfer's Journal visiting us, David McClay Kidd, renowned architect behind Bandon Dunes, Makrahanish Dunes, Gamble Sands, other dunes like mammoth dunes and some dunes in nebraska where he takes a break gets off uh the the tozer or whatever he was up to uh, and takes some time to speak with us so really appreciate david coming back to talk about uh, what's going on in golf uh, in his world there's a lot going on and what's going in, on in the larger building architecture development world as well uh first two notes of uh tgj business here the lottery starts uh starts tomorrow for the 2023 Broken T2 Man. I don't think I need to tell you where this one's happening. It's happening at Sleepy Hollow. This is our Sleepy Hollow, our flagship event. Golf's ninth major, whatever you want to call it. It's the uh, it's the two man. We started it at Goat Hill in 2018 and then went to Trinity Forest, Bally Hack, Hazeltine, last year at Baltimore Country Club, and now Sleepy Hollow. Pretty exciting. So Get your partner. Make sure that partner is a member of the Golfer's Journal as well, of the Broken Tea Society. Throw your name in the hat. Get registered in the lottery and cross your fingers for August 21st in New York and see if you possibly can be the ones to finally take down our back-to-back -back defend defending champs. And that would, of course, be Brent Borgstahl and Tanner Grameas from Minnesota. If you do take them down, you will get to skip registration for 2024 and automatically be in, which will, of course, be at another uh, a really exciting venue. Go to golfersjournal.com slash events and get in on that today. And time is running out on the May referral game as time runs out on May. 
This month, we're giving away one of 12 limited edition Scotty Cameron Golfer's Journal putters. These things are just sweet with the broken tee right on there on the putter, uh, giving them to a lucky member who refers at least one member this month. Only one. You just have to refer one, and you are entered. Now, of course, if you refer 10, you're entered 10 times, so um, refer more. And if you do... uh, the reasons there are lots of reasons for referring for your friend. First of all, we're going to give them uh, new members. They're going to get five editions of the Golfer's Journal instead of four with that initial subscription. Uh, and also, by referring somebody for the Golfer's Journal, we're going to you're going to get into the year long uh, running as well. Now, the year long referral prize just refer one person and you could win it. Uh, it's that 14 club fitting full Titleist bag. Uh, basically, if Titleist makes it. We're going to give it to you, uh, all fit exactly to your specs. So an absurd prize for the year long uh, as well. Really easy to get entered. Log in to your account. Get your referral code posted everywhere, okay? Put it out on your socials, on your texts, on your text threads, and your WhatsApp. I was just in Ireland. Uh, It's all WhatsApp over there. There's like nobody texts. You got to get your WhatsApp cooking if you're traveling. Uh, And you should be posting your referral code there as well. Uh, If someone clicks on it and subscribes, boom, you're entered. So again, ends tomorrow. If you have any friends that you think would be great for the Golfer's Journal, and we know you do, um, how about a shot at winning a Scotty Cameron? All right, let's turn things over to David McClay Kidd coming to us from Nebraska to talk about what's happening in Nebraska, what's happening at Grable, and also why this golf boom that we're experiencing, maybe it's the kind of boom that doesn't necessarily need to bust. How are you, my friend? It is good to see you. You look great. I'm good. I'm good. I'm uh, I'm busy. Uh, lots of running around. <laughs> That's. Uh, I think we're yeah. going to talk about that. Uh, the, the busyness. Yeah. You've got some color there. Where are you coming to us from? I am in North Platte, Nebraska, which really, truly is the middle of nowhere. I, you know, I used to call Bandon Dunes the edge of nowhere, uh, and now I'm working in the middle of nowhere. So I'm covering, I've got nowhere covered. <laughs> Congrats on that. Well, it won't be nowhere yeah. for long, as they say. Um, you know, exciting. So the golf course that you're working, that you're visiting, that you currently happen to be at today um tell us yep. about what has brought you to nebraska it's a hot spot for sure lots of good stuff going on in nebraska it only seems fitting that we find you there um tell us about the project you're working on well it's uh it's like a lot of things a lot of uh, happenstance and good fortune and, and uh, just dumb luck uh i got to know the peed family who owned the dormy network Mm-hmm. Uh, Tom Feed, Tom Pete, the patriarch, is a member at Nanea out in Hawaii, uh, and I got to know him, and we, I got to know his son Zach, and we got to chatting about the Dormy Network building their first ground-up project, and they're from Lincoln, uh, and when they started talking to me, I said, you know, I would love, love, love to build a golf course in the sand hills of Nebraska. I feel like my peer group have all had a chance from yeah. Bill Coor to Doke to, to, to Gil Hansen and a few others, not many. And there aren't a whole lot of golf courses out here, uh, but the terrain is 
phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. Hundreds and hundreds of acres of rolly, pitchy sand dunes, not a tree in sight, not a fake lake, not a power line, not a freeway. I mean, it is uh, like the most amazing golf terrain you could ever imagine. And then just for good measure, uh, there's an ocean of fresh water underneath it, the Ogallala Aquifer, what? which I'm told is the largest aquifer in America. So what is that? So you have yeah, you so, have water running under the golf course. How do you access? Well, so what do you do? You just dig down and you get and you, you get dig water. A, if you drill a well, yeah, yeah. So most golf courses, you drill a well and you you have your fingers and toes crossed and you hope like hell they actually hit some water. Right. And then when that well is dug, that it yields enough water to water your golf course. So if you take Bandon Dunes for instance, even though it pours rain over there for a few months they need multiple wells per golf course uh, to irrigate a golf course three or four wells maybe to do a golf course okay. here they sunk one well and it came out a thousand gallons per minute and i Boom. asked the guy who dug the well that's that's lucky how did how did we hit on a thousand gallons per minute i mean that seems like a very round number and he said <laughs> well because i put a thousand gallon a minute pump on it idiot <laughs> So there is a lot of water down there. If he'd put a 2,000 gallon per, per minute pump on it, I'm sure that's what it would have given I bet us. you'd be getting so Wow. It is interesting that everyone wants to get hot under the collar about golf and the amount of water it uses. And that is no doubt true. When you're in you know, Arizona, uh, water is a hot topic, as it is in Southern California sure. and Texas and various other places. But when you're in Wisconsin or New England or here in North Platte, Nebraska, it's not such a big concern. There's a lot of water. All right, so you've got the not water. A lot of people here. But you yeah, right. Are they, yeah. In the middle of nowhere as you said, an amazing terrain. So sand dunes as far as the eye can see. Uh so if you pair up sand dunes with uh with plenty of water, you can create amazing golf without a whole lot of effort. A, a Lynx golf course. Yeah, in for the uh, in Nebraska, working for the Dormy Network, uh, uh, building their first ground-up golfers uh, that's going to be called Grey Bull, uh, and they have eighteen hundred acres, and we're building a golf course in a spot. To give you an example, Bandon Dunes covers sixteen hundred acres, so eighteen hundred acres. We're building Yeesh. one single golf course. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, wait a second. There's room for others, yeah. uh, I would say. You're not using all 1,800, or that's going to be a tough walk, David. Uh, well, it's only one golf course. It's just nothing touches anything. It's one really? giant ribbon of golf that's, yeah, that uh, if you drew a circle around the golf course, I'll bet you it's 1,000 acres. Get out. I mean, it's the, the back nine probably takes up the room that 36 holes might on a on a development somewhere else right. you know, it's very very stretched out and so when you're playing this golf course you're going to be completely in a hole on your own hundreds of yards from anything uh lost out in these sand hills and most of the courses in the sand hills are private you know sand hills and dismal river and, right uh you know a lot of these courses prairie club's one of the few that allows the public in so this one's sort of semi-private you can join the dormy network and that gives you access to all of their courses. Uh, and then this will be in their network. So I guess it is private, but the, it's it's not sort of super, super exclusive. You know, it's open. Right. You can join it. 
and then you can come here as a guest and enjoy it. So uh, I'm excited to be not only building a course in the Sandhills, but building the first sort of ground up project for the Dormy Network, hopefully not their last. It's very cool. So Gray Bull in Nebraska, if people aren't familiar with the Dormy Network, uh, you know, you join the Dormy Network and you belong to, I mean, how many, is it like six places now? I was, I just was playing Hidden Creek last weekend. Six. Um, yeah, and, yeah six. So they this have, will be number seven. Okay. So they have courses spread around the country. Um, so it's not like a place that you would, it wouldn't be like your local every day. I go there five days a week. It's, you kind of bounce around and go to the different courses in that network. Um, and of course, Grable, as you said, uh, their model to this point has been buying, you know, upscale, successful, maybe private clubs, uh, and then incorporating them into the network, uh, as they've done in Pinehurst and in New Jersey and elsewhere. Um, but now in Nebraska, yeah, my explanation so to one. folks, my explanation is it's it's the destination golf model, but private. So, right. you know, if you want to go to Band and Gins, that's I mean, who doesn't? But you can't get a tea time for 18 months. And when you get there, there's going to be 150 people on the tee that day with you. So don't be late and keep up. Uh, whereas yeah. if you're a Dormy Network member, you know, you're turning up, there's probably only a handful of foursomes and there's no tea times and it's a much more, uh, you know, relaxed version of destination golf. The, you know, it's very upscale, uh, not so many people, easier access. Uh, so I like it. I, uh, I liked it so much. I love the concept of it that I, I joined. So I'm a member myself. I'm, uh, I'll be playing in the, uh, one of the member guests later this year will be my second member guest with uh, the Dormy network. Wow. They will let anyone in. Um, to the door i wouldn't they will. no they but will. that that is that's exciting that's your invite screwed buddy hey come on i was about <laughs> to make the play for the member guest partner you know what i was doing or unless you unless you have somebody I've, else in mind fine i've played golf with you you can be my member guest partner anytime thanks buddy you know what i was looking at today is my five pound note um we'll talk more about that later uh, but it is great playing. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. But uh, we, we need to play more golf together, play great bowl. And yeah, no, I, I being at a Dormy Network property recently, um, not doing a commercial for them, but they really did uh, up their game in terms of the hospitality. It was really quite impressive. So um, what they're doing seems seems to be working. And that's a cool story, too. If in the Nenea is the golf course. People don't know that you designed on the big Island of Hawaii. Um, so to just actually make friends there, uh, and that, that leads to, uh, that leads to this job. That's, that's pretty fantastic. And, uh, I want to ask you the Sandhills. There's a lot going on in Nebraska. The, the Sandhills there, uh, the Sandhills in Colorado, there's sand in where you've built a golf course in Wisconsin, uh, I've done the, you know, when, when we're talking about, um, mammoth dunes, I've done this research before because I've written about it, but I, I can't really articulate it very well at the moment. How the hell does all this sand end up in the middle of a continent? Uh, you know, basically what I assume at some point with seabed get pushed into Nebraska. Uh, where does this well, sort of geological not, thing happen? Is that not true? Yeah, I'm. No, it's not true. I'm 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 not a geologist, but I I stayed at Holiday Inn last night, so maybe that makes me an expert. Fair for uh, that. 
from what I understand, sand uh, can be delivered to a location basically two ways, either by wind or by water. So a place like Bandon Dunes, it got delivered by water, right? It was all part of the sea and the sea recedes and uh, and so the sand dunes get blown up by, by the wind to make the shapes, but it was the water that put it there. Uh, same is true in uh, uh, Sand Valley, even though it's in Wisconsin, that is the bottom of a massive sea that was there pre the last ice age. However, right. the sand dunes in the middle of America, the Colorado sand dunes through Nebraska sand dunes, that whole sand hills area, this is all erosion from the Rocky Mountains that got blown here over thousands and thousands of years. So oh. all of the sand here is very, very, it's very fine. You know, if you go to the beach, sometimes the sand can be pretty coarse. Uh, this stuff is like the finest grade sandpaper you can get. So it finds its way when you're building a golf course and it's not grass yet, it finds its way into whatever shoes you may care to buy, <laughs> no matter how expensive they are. Uh, I come back and I have my toes have been jammed up against the end of the boot by the very fine sand that's out there, which is my situation right this second. I know we caught you coming right off the site. Uh, so kick, right take those the site. take those shoes off um, and yeah. kick your feet kick your feet up. You've got a lot going on, David. You said you've been all over the place. You've been in the news all over for uh, you know designs in places in Portugal, in Florida, in tell us what you're up to. What can you tell us? In fact, what there are probably things you can't tell us that you're up to, but what is on the plate uh right now in this um in this golf in this boom? The pandemic was good to golf. Uh, everybody dusted off their old set of clubs out the back of the garage and decided to go play golf again. Uh, which was has been great and wonderful for the game, wonderful for those of us in it. Uh, we are our next opening will be uh, Comporta Dunes. It's called actually called uh, Dunas at Comporta, mm -hmm. uh, and so that's a project we've been working on for a long time. It had a couple of stops and starts, but eventually we got it done last year. Uh, I was out there at the beginning of this year. They got played the full 18 holes for the first time, fully grassed, putting on every surface. Uh, it was really, really fun. The golf course was a riot to play. It looks cool as well. It's all through it's these big rolling sand hills almost. They're not really dunes because they're so big and broad. Uh, it's right on the Atlantic Ocean, uh, just south of Lisbon, about hour and a half. Uh, so that will be the next course that will open. It soft opens in May and then fully opens in October nice. this year. Uh, so that's super fun. I'll be, I'll be out there uh, from, in May and again in October uh, to welcome the first public, paying public. Uh, so that should be fun. It's always a, a, kind of nervous for me because you never quite know what people's reactions are going to be. Uh, you know, if they're coming from Northern Europe, they, they may well have an idea of what to expect. Uh, you know, hopefully there'll be some Americans make it over as well. So excited to see that open. Uh, here at Graybull in Nebraska, we are just about to start grassing. We started building early last year, uh, shaped all through last year, right up to almost Christmas, stopped for a couple months, came back at it in uh, late February, early March. And we're, we just got the pump station going today. 
So a huge uh, celebration by everyone. I'm taking everybody out to dinner tomorrow night because pushing water is like, it's almost like the beginning of the end, right? And once you start pushing water, you know that grassing is very close behind it. And once we put grass down, our work is kind of done and we start handing over the baby for adoption by the superintendent and the operational people. And so pushing water is a big deal. It's like, like the last uh, carriage on a very long train, all the effort to get to that point where you pressurize the main line and the pumps are running and water starts coming out. And uh, we all love working in sand, but walking in soft sand gets old. So I'm looking forward to walking in wet sand. There you go. For the rest of this year as we finish it. Uh, we just started construction of the next 18 holes at Gamble Sands. So mm -hmm. I literally came from there this morning. I was there Monday and Tuesday on site. And then I left there last night, uh, went home for eight hours sleep, and then came here this morning. Are you flying yourself again? Is the Are you back in the I, business of doing that? I am uh, I am company pilot, yes. So I flew my partner Nick up to Gamble Sands. We worked there together. I flew him home last night. And then I uh, went to Starbucks at 6 a.m. this morning, got my breakfast, jumped in the plane, and three hours and 20 minutes later, I landed here in North Platte. Uh, and I'll be here all week. I'll be here all week. Try the pork. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> But there's and is so, that that's yeah. not all, folks. You're going then. Are you pie now? Oh, your name's on a golf course in Florida, or or was that a lie? Florida, and, I don't know. In, there's something in a newspaper no, no, I saw somewhere. Yeah, no, we're working in Tampa. Uh, okay. We're we're doing our first ever project on the East Coast, uh, outside of Tampa on the East Side. Uh, cool site, beautiful giant trees. Uh, cool developer. You know he's not really a golfer which is perfect he knows just enough uh to to want it to be cool and not so much he starts telling me what to do so that's great okay uh, so yeah uh, we're working on that too and a few others but i can't remember if they're common knowledge or not so i'm a little scared to say anything to i know <laughs> i know i know i know there's one i want to blow out there but uh so, we'll, yeah, we'll hold off we um, are busy yeah you are busy which is exciting we're, we're never too busy we're never too busy. If someone's know, got some cool know. project on a beach somewhere, <laughs> where we can make a space, we'll figure let's, it out. Let's never give that impression. We are never. We're we're not. We're yeah. not saying no to any never business out there. Nothing. Where where, yeah. where do you take your crew for a celebratory dinner in North Platte? Well, there's two restaurants in town: Applebee's and Ruby Tuesdays. Either and, both. Uh, Applebee's. Uh, Applebee's, believe it or not. The locals love and there's just no way of taking the 15 people i need to take to dinner tomorrow night so it's gonna have to be ruby tuesdays Ugh. so uh you couldn't yeah. score so a, a, a room at applebee's at or... okay no chance no it's, well it's, it's, it's I, I, you get this applebee's is rocking here <laughs> you get the salad bar i believe if if i recall at ruby tuesdays so bonus there you do get uh, salad bar and the, yeah. and the margaritas the margaritas are very good at ruby tuesdays but you wouldn't know anything about that best in so, town yeah, they're good no no yeah. those based those north platte margaritas used to do me in um but yeah. hey no that's really that i'm i'm so excited for you it is a really exciting time for golf and i want to ask you a little bit about that um you know this 
this boom in construction, I guess it's probably the last one we saw was, I don't know, early 2000s, sort of like post-Tiger coming on the scene, um, where there were a lot of golf courses. And tell me, correct me if I'm wrong, um, you know, and then there's a... Well, the 90s, a, I mean, all... All through the nineties, the U.S. was building like three to five hundred every year. Yeah, through the nineties, uh, that's crazy. And then you know it started. I think t- the and Tiger was coming out then. You know, ninety nine is when I built Bandon Dunes, and yeah. Tiger and David Duval were vying for number one in the world. Can, we, can you believe that that was the case? But that's what it was in ninety nine. Oh, those uh, are great so yeah, uh, and the nineties were the real boom for golf, and a lot of really really crappy golf courses got built. Indeed. And now, and then there's, and then there's a dip, uh, you know, a, a, or a, a crash, if you will. Uh, and now things back on the uptick. Um, is there anything now that you are busy? Um, is there anything that you take or that you learn from like the leaner times, um, that have informed how you're approaching? I mean, one, one, do you think it's going to last? How is it sustainable? You mentioned, people playing yes people played more golf during the pandemic that is leveled off a little bit but i don't think construction has like like our architects and builders are busy as hell um so yeah, is that is that going to continue true. what's i i think that i think that's a misnomer to be honest because i i think in the 90s when there were three to five hundred being built everybody in his grandma was a golf course architect and every single landscape construction company was a golf course builder Mm-hmm. And then when 2009 happened and it crashed, yeah. everybody got out of the golf business except those that could survive. And then it went from, I heard a statistic that I couldn't swear on, but I heard there was something like 220 registered golf course architects in like 2008. And I, I mean, do you think there are now a couple of dozen? Yeah. So well, yeah. The, the there's 10%, I think, of architects now compared to before and in construction companies there's like a half a dozen major golf construction companies and there were dozens and dozens before so uh, the reason that we see such an uptick in golf construction is because the courses that are being built are really good you know the the -hmm. competition is extremely high so the courses that are being built are not podunk POS's from you know 1993 yeah. They're, they all have to be really good to survive. So they they get a huge amount of press. press. And of course, we have social media that spreads the word like wildfire. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think what we're seeing is a lot more attention on a lot fewer projects. I still think uh, the National Golf Foundation are telling us that there's less than 30 courses being built in an entire year right now. That's really interesting. 500. 500 yeah. courses being built in 1997. That is a so, good point. Uh, I Yeah, I, I think that we hear a lot about some really, really great projects and there aren't just a plethora of crap being built, which is actually really good for the game. Yeah. The, the biggest challenge we have is what do we do with all that crap that got built in the 90s? Because, you know, those are, those are real golf courses with real members and people trying to play them with, irrigation systems that are failing and car paths that are crumbling and you know clubhouses that may, maybe need maintenance so you know we in the industry of golf need to look at those projects and and figure out how we're going to make them better you know that that is going to be where the work is going forward it's probably not in building new projects that 
that there are very, very few people making a decent living doing that in the world. That's a great point. I mean, there it are reminds still thousands me of, of crappy golf courses from the nineties. It reminds me of um, thinking of the parallel as as writers, or say like screenwriters. Uh, you think you're a screenwriter, right? So you write movies and you go see your movies, and that's that's what you do. Well, it's a tiny, tiny percentage of screenwriters actually uh, would write a film from page one to page a hundred. Pretty much all of them make their living doing rewrites. So uh, I, I see the parallel in 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 architecture, golf course construction, For sure. you know, where there's a lot of golf courses that do need updating that where their bunkers have expired, uh, where their irrigations busted. I mean, our course 1965, where I play here at Waynesboro, which is going to be available for the golfers journal members to come out and enjoy this summer. Uh, we're having an event there, but, uh, we'd gotten to the age where, yeah, we, our irrigation and bunkers were dead. And, uh, and we also decided at the same time to do a remodel, spruce things up, um, Andrew Green did the job. He did a great job. I'm excited to share it with everyone. Um, uh, you were off in the sand hills doing something. Uh, you were, I was told, so you were unavailable. It's okay. That's it's a okay. long way from. It is it's a long way from Oregon. It's a long way. Um, but in any event, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's there are so many places uh, that that need that TLC, and at this point, you're seeing that's picking up as well. The 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 remodel work because golf courses. For the first time in a while, it seems like have a little money to throw around um, with with a fuller membership, etc. So Absolutely. it's good. Yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah. So yeah, there's sixteen thousand existing golf courses in the U.S. and we might be building a couple of dozen new ones every year. I would say that the sixteen thousand is a much bigger market than the twenty four that a few you know that a few of us get more than our fair share of. Yeah, you're absolutely right, and that is a good point. We know so much about those 24 uh, because they're blasted all over social, and we know who's building them, and we know who's this, you know, this, that, and the other, that it does seem like, oh, my gosh, another course is going up because I heard about another one last month. Um, but when you look at it in the right perspective, perhaps not. You alluded to, the though, these courses, when, they, when a, new, a job for a new course comes up or a developer has a piece of property, the competition for that is, is as you mentioned, pretty fierce. Um, and it's, I imagine in, in, this is how I think it goes, that it is the usual suspects that it's, it's Gill, it's Stoke, it's, it's Dave, DMK, it's, um, maybe Andrew Green in there, like a few, or a few new faces, uh, Corey Crenshaw, of course. Um, is that how it goes? And if it, if that is how it goes, how does that, how do you approach, uh, a pitch or a, a, a proposal, um, do you feel like you have to do something different because you know what Doke's going to do or you know what, what Gill's going to do? How's that process work? You know, it's, it's not like that. Uh, it's not like that at all. Uh, it'd be cooler enough. if it was, though. Uh, I think what happens, yeah, it would be cooler if it was. I mean, the only place that I know that that happened, at least in my knowledge, was uh, the second course at Sand Valley that I ended up doing called Mammoth Dunes. And in that scenario... Uh, Mike Kaiser invited me, Tom Doak, and Dave Axland, uh, and Rod Whitman to each submit proposals, designs. Mm -hmm. And then Mike and his uh, uh, crew basically did a bake-off, and, uh, and we won that. Uh, but that's not common. That, that is not common. I, I, think, huh. I think the reason that it happened was because it was Mike Kaiser. Uh, I think if... 
if a developer without Mike's gravitas was to call, you know, me and Bill and Gil and talk, you know, the people you mentioned and said, Hey, I want you each to do a design and I'm going to pick. I think, I think we would all probably politely decline. Really? Yeah. I think we probably would. Yeah. Uh, well. You know, I, 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 what about 10 years ago when it wasn't so busy? <laughs> maybe throw your hat in the ring. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah, maybe not. But at least right now, you know, you know, demand is far greater than supply. Uh, and, you know, I can look at the projects that are uh, in, I'm invited to go look at and I can make a decision on, you know, our workload and the site and the developer and, you know, whether we're a good fit or not, you know, and, and decide that, you know, it's not something that we'd be a good fit for yeah and you know that's that that has happened a couple of three times already this year uh where for various reasons you know we we just i didn't feel that we probably were a good fit for it uh so i think most of the time we're not really pitching uh and if we are we're i'm not aware of it you know they're not saying hey you know you're pitching against five other people uh i think if i knew i was i probably wouldn't well there you go well, that's a great place to be. And of yeah, course, with your track record, that's that, no surprise. It sounds kind of arrogant, Tom, but I, I, I probably want to qualify it by saying that the vast majority of clients are pretty sophisticated and they are, you know, it's coming through referrals. You know, I know somebody mm -hmm. that they know and they invite me to come look and you know, we, there's a dance that goes on, right. And, you know, they're trying to figure out if I'm a good fit for them and I'm trying to figure out if they're a good fit for me. And I'm sure they may well be doing the same thing with Bill Kerr the week before or the week after, but I'm not aware of it. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the conversation continues and sometimes we're working on a project and no proposal has even been written. Right? We're like, okay, cool. This is cool. You know, let's start figuring stuff out. And then you know, uh, we're working on one right now that we've been working on for, gosh, probably, probably all year. So four months in, and we don't have a contract of any sort. Really? Is that why we yeah. maybe so, don't announce that one? Or maybe we should? Yeah, definitely don't announce that one. All yeah. right. No, we want to avoid that. In case somebody else calls the guy and says, I can do it for half the price. <laughs> exactly. And it will be half as good. I can do it for half the price, half as good. Is that a deal? <laughs> well, David, we're talking about you built some. We talked about building in the sand and the sand that's currently in your shoes, and you've built some amazing golf course courses in the sand uh, from Scotland uh, to the United States. What is it that we love so much about golf in the sand? And also, clarify for folks. Uh, you know, when we say we build golf courses or links courses, or sort of happen in the dunes. Um, and then you, I sometimes, you know, you wonder, okay, wait, how do you grow these grass species, uh, out of sand? Uh, what actually, what is the process of turning a dune into a beautiful lush green, not lush, maybe fast and firm, uh, green golf course? Usually water, you know, cause if you just if water sand, you can grow grass on it. Is that true? Yeah. I mean, the beach is not covered true. in sand, David. And it gets water on it. Well, that's all the time. That's salty water. Should, okay. I should probably qualify that and say fresh water. Show me a beach next to a lake, and I'll show you your grass growing right in that sand. Right. You really, you, if you put fresh water and sand together, you're going to grass will grow. It will find a way. 
The only way it's not growing is if the you know there's some lake waves beating against the edge of that lake. But you get slightly higher than that, and there's grass growing in that sand. I guarantee it. Well, there you go. So, and why does yeah. it, why does it give us these yeah. conditions that are that we crave so much? Uh, you know, when people talk about you know playing golf on on sandy soil or or in the dunes or in the sand hills. Um, I've heard you speak about this before. What makes Lynx golf, it, you know, we're basically talking about a Lynxy experience and what makes it so interesting and so special for people who might not have played a Lynx golf, Lynx golf course, see it on the, you know, at the open championship, um, or read about it in a book. Uh, why do we care so much about it? What makes it worth traveling for? Well, from the top down, from the golfer's perspective, even if the golfer is aware of nothing else, nothing else, just one thing, they know that the ball rolls, right? It bounces and it rolls. If you don't play on sand, the greenkeeper is going to work his butt off to try and make the ball bounce and roll. But without sand, it's a job. It's not easy to do. So from a golf perspective, if you know nothing else, the minute you're on sand, the ball will bounce and roll. And that brings, it takes golf from like primary colors, like a little kid with crayons to like fine works of art in multiple dimensions. You know, the minute that a golf ball bounces, a golfer has to consider, you know, this whole, like the matrix. I mean, it's just this massively complex puzzle that then plays out because you have to anticipate how the ball is going to bounce and then how far it's going to roll and how long it's going to take to stop. And all of that is truly golf that's what golf is and when you play golf in america on a parkland golf course that's wet and soft the golf ball doesn't roll anywhere and so golf becomes this very binary two-dimensional not golf it should be called something else like almost golf not quite <laughs> golf and that's no doubt influenced. golf on sand is golf golf on sand is golf says the scotsman and uh no doubt influenced oh. by the golf Plus the tell wind. me, tell me. Plus, Plus the, wind. the wind. Plus the wind. If you really, really, really want it to be golf at its absolute purest, it's going to be golf on sand with a little bit of wind. Not too much, but not nothing. Well, tell us about the Scottish point of view. You come to golf. Um, you know, people might not know your background, and you have a great story. Uh, your dad was a legend in the game, and uh, tell us how you came to it. My dad was a greenkeeper, so not exactly like Jack Nicholas legend. In the no, game, I don't mean that way, but, world. but people know yeah, who Jimmy Kidd is. Yeah, in, in the UK, he, he was a very well-known, respected superintendent. He, his, his peer group uh, in the 60s and into the 70s were the core group of Scottish greenkeepers that were in charge of all the best courses from St. Andrews to Carnoustie to Glen Eagles to Turnbury. So he, that was his peer group, and they were... Uh, taking the game of golf and helping make it more professional, uh, better managed, more understood, making this, the, the grass managers into sort of managers and scientists. And my, my father was probably uh, pushing that the most. Uh, so I came from that background and I, I, my dad was a huge golf architectural buff. He loved architecture and everything about it and old pictures and, books and everything he could lay his hands on uh so uh, that was my background oh my goodness me people just don't stop pinging me that was the problem doing this on my phone Uh, yeah you can't hear it that's good Uh, (laughs) no we can't we can't hear uh, the uh 
Well, here I, you can't hear the pings. Well, I'm here on a construction site, and uh, everyone went to dinner except me. So they're oh. like, "Where did you go?" <laughs> they're all at Applebee's. So I to tell them because I forgot. Oh. or Ruby Tuesdays. They just got their flingers. So, uh, they want to know if you want some. So uh, great. So I, yeah, I, you're from not a, throw me off track here. But your dad so and this Scottish background, this golfing background, background, yes. Yeah, so he's a superintendent, greenkeeper. I'm raised around this whole thing. It's it's in my blood. I understand that golf at its best is minimalist and simple and playable by you know every ability through every generation. Uh, and then I I came to the U.S. in my twenties and saw these golf courses that that just didn't speak to me at all. You know they were narrow and covered in bunkers with elevated tiny greens with grass that's like a glass tabletop uh, and big trees. And I thought, hell, this doesn't look like any fun at all. This thing looks hard. Uh, and so no, I was told, no, 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 you don't understand. This is golf. This is, this is golf. Uh, and I played these golf courses and thought, this doesn't work for me at all. I, I hit my low driver that barely makes it 50 feet in the air uh, and it stops in a puddle. Uh, you know, these guys are hitting these monsters that are 110 foot towering drives. I mean, I, I, you can't play that in Scotland. It'll be on the next fairway. Uh, and so golf to me was this, I, I just couldn't figure out. I'm like, what? this is what people are playing over here. They, this bright green, lush, wet golf course with these, you know, lakes that have had dye put in them and fountains and yellow bunkers or white bunkers absolutely everywhere. This just seems not golf to me uh and so when mike kaiser hired me as a 26 year old you know he gave me the opportunity to lay out banded dunes in golf as i knew it I, it wasn't like i was smarter than everybody else i i don't think i was smart at all i just knew that what i saw wasn't golf so i just built what i knew was golf and then everybody said wow look at this this is this changes everything and i thought what are they talking about this is exactly what exists in scotland and ireland for 500 years what are they yeah. talking about and even to this day i'm still slightly embarrassed when people say yeah you know bandages was the ground zero for you know minimalist golf in america and the resurgence of links golf and i think i was just doing what my dad and his peer group told me to do no different than I saw on any given day on any given course in Scotland. Well, its impact is undeniable. Well you know. Yes, no, as indeed, indeed, I do. But its impact uh, is is undeniable, um, and such a fun day of golf as well. As many of your golf courses would be known uh, as for their, you know, from Gamble Sands to to Mammoth Dunes and others, uh, would be sort of known for their fun, their playability. Uh, and I know that's something you care a lot about. Uh, but there have been other courses you've designed that are very demanding, say like Nenea, uh or um, the f original version of the Castle course. Have you? How well, is your forget, view? Don't forget Tethero, Tethero in Oregon, uh, tether my home that, course. Yes, is, uh, yes, that is no our, cakewalk. Our, um, do, you, do you know what the Do you know what the members call it? Death row. <laughs> what do they death call row. it? Death row. Yeah, death row. I just That's came up with that. They actually, it's, they it's actually right there. You just. They, yeah, they have a death row tournament. <laughs> it's hard. 
How have you yeah. evolved in your point of view? Has it been a gradual experience? Was it an epiphany moment? Like, you know, to sort of where I know where your focus is now on, on, on that sort of, I, on that fun factor. I think it was, I think it was kind of an epiphany. It was, you know, I can, I can almost point at it to the day. Uh, it was around uh, 2000, late 2008, early 2009. Uh, the economy was going downhill. Uh, I was at, you know, Bandon Dunes and Tethero uh, a few days apart. And I sat at the bar at Bandon and all I heard was group after group after group coming in and saying, we loved it. We loved it. We had such fun. I didn't play very well. You know, I broke 90 or I broke 100, but I had the most fun ever. I played a whole round of golf with the same golf ball. You know, I had a caddy with me. It was a blast. I loved it. And then a, a day later, I think I was at Tethero sitting at the bar and group after group came in and they looked like they'd been through a war. Uh, and I didn't hear anyone saying that they loved it. I didn't hear anyone saying I'm desperate to come back and have my ass kicked one more time. I didn't hear anyone say I didn't lose a ball. And even though Tethero had opened best new in golf magazine and had, you know, scored a bunch of so-called, you know, credibility rankings, I thought to myself, is this really what golf is meant to be? Is this really the tagline that I gave Bandon? You know, maybe I'm in the wrong direction here. Maybe I need to go back to my roots and think about what golf is and how golf should be experienced by the masses. Uh, and so that's what I did. I, I sort of recommitted myself and my small team to figure out what makes golf fun. You know, why do we want to do it? Uh, well, of course, we want it to be challenging. We don't want it to just lay down in front of us. But we also don't want to make an error and have absolutely no chance of recovery. And since golf is all error, I mean, the perfect shot, you know, may have never been hit yet, right? It's all slightly, you know, to, to a greater or lesser extent, <laughs> yes. management of errors. Uh, and if the golf course architect is constantly looking for perfection, those two things don't jive. So I, I needed to get back to figuring out how to make golf fun for the average person. And that has to be giving them some measure of success and then allowing them some measure of mercy when they make the inevitable errors. A management so of errors. A, a, a management of errors. What a great phrase. I think that's going to be the – I've got the title for my autobiography now. Um, and you've, <laughs> you've, you can have it. It's, it's really good. Uh, that's a great – that is golf. Uh, and that's a great way of thinking of it. Um, now, that – evolution along the way what's taught you the most um you know what say let's say who's taught you the most uh on your on your journey uh to where you are well, now I, I you know a lot of people i've been really really lucky to have had so many mentors you know some of them super successful famous people and some people you know the mechanic at you know, a golf club somewhere that, that taught me something over and over. So uh, I've been very fortunate to have had numerous mentors throughout my career. You know, who's given me the best opportunity and probably taught me the most if I pointed at one person, it'd probably be Mike Kaiser. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I got to meet him in my, I think I was 24 years old when I first met him. So I've pretty much known him my entire adult life. Uh, I, I've seen the way he manages 
situations and people, uh, how he approaches the game of golf, how he approaches uh, the social interactions he has. I mean, the, the, the guy has, has played a heavy influence on my life and many others. Uh, you know, I, I often find myself, you know, in maybe a slightly awkward position and think, you know, what would Mike do? You know, and he'd probably mm. just ignore, you know, some faux pas that someone made and he'd just move right past it, you know, and you think that's, it's a very mature way to act. And yet the guy is vibrant with a cool personality and a great sense of humor. And, you know, so probably him, if I had to point at, at someone other than my father who would, we would trump Mike. Of I didn't course. go right there, but I'm going to now. Yeah, yeah, no, of course. So, and what would what would a Mike Kaiser see in a 24 year old David McClay kid, 24 year old Scotsman with this new big opportunity uh, to take a chance on you uh, and and go with you for for the first course? Well, I don't think he saw me. I think he saw my father and my father's peers. Right? I think he saw you know, multiple generations of Scottish greenkeepers uh, condensed, distilled into this young Turk, uh, hmm. the, the, the kid of probably the, the most vocal of that group. Uh, and so he figured that, you know, the apple wouldn't have fallen far from the tree and the father wouldn't let the son fail. And I think that that was incredibly smart and mature of Mike because now that I'm the age Mike was when he hired me, I see that, you know, I have a 25 year old son. If someone, my son's not in the golf business, but if someone hired my son in the golf business and he had been as passionate about it as I was at that age, I sure as hell wouldn't let him fail. Yeah. I would do all I could to make him thrive and survive. And I would, I would steer him and cajole him and keep him within the, the rails. Right. And I think my father did that for me throughout my career still does. So you know, Mike wasn't taking the chance that people think he was, right? He was mm. taking the chance on on this uh, brain trust of Scottish greenkeepers who'd uh, pushed forward this uh, young kid as kind of their representative. That's how I felt then and feel now. That's very cool. I remember you telling me um, that your dad, or maybe it was because I think you told me that your dad, Gamble Sands, was his favorite of your courses. Um, and maybe yes, that's, maybe that's in changed. In 2018, we opened Mammoth Dunes and I had uh, just gotten uh, an airplane that could cross the country. And so I took my wife and my dad and we went and played everything I'd done in the US. And at the end of the trip, we went home to Oregon uh, and I handed my dad a glass of whiskey and said, okay, you know, <laughs> you have to decide which one's the best. Uh, and he took all night to go through everything that I'd done and pour through every detail and talk about all the nuances and the things he loved and the things he didn't love. Uh, and then he mulled over uh, really two or three that he thought were the, the cream of the crop. And I was sure that he was going to fall towards Mammoth Dunes because we just opened it. Mm -hmm. uh, and he said, Gamble Sands, you know, it, it, it has everything I could ask for from fescue grasses and sand and amazing playability and yet really cool strategy and one component that only existed in one other place uh, and he was referring to Bandon Dunes which is the view. Gamble Sands yeah. has a vista that is unparalleled. You know the golf is good but the view is phenomenal 
Uh, and for him, that, that took it to the top of the pile. What about but your I did list? like the fact that he took all night to get there. <laughs> right. No, absolutely. That's got to be hard uh, for for dad to. And that'd be hard. That'd be. I'd be struggling watching my dad if he had to like rank my my stories or something rank like that. Books. Yeah. Right. Like. Uh, and and and. Yeah, I didn't read those two. I didn't him. get past the first chapter. <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of how it would go. Um, yeah. How How about you? Uh, it's like ranking your children. I know. Um, but is no, there? It's, it's a much. It's it's a much different question when you ask me this, uh, yeah. because you know my my experience on a golf course is totally unlike your experience on one of my golf courses. Let me explain it this way: when you go and play Gamble Sands, you know you get there, the weather's nice, you check into your room, you know the course is in great condition, you've got three of your best friends with you who you haven't seen in a while and you absolutely love their company and you play the 18 holes and the weather's great and you enjoy their company and then you have a great meal that night and your experience is not just the golf course, right? It's wrapped up in all of it. Your journey there, your friendships that you have, the the weather, the meal, all of that. Well, imagine doing that over say five years because that's my experience with these projects. I'm, I'm with my best friends, you know, on these projects. I caught up with six of my closest, closest friends out on the golf course today that I haven't seen in two weeks. And they've been working for two weeks on things that we all got excited and talked about two weeks ago. Uh, And then they got to reveal it to hopefully one of their best friends. And we had this, you know, kumbaya walk for a couple of hours, ooing and eyeing about the stuff we'd done and how excited we were about it. So these projects for me aren't just about what's physically left behind. It's about, you know, this whole experience of creation together. You know, I'm, I'm not writing a book on my own. Uh, you know, it's, it's like your books are so successful because they, it, it's not the writing. It's the experience that you had in order to make the writing. That's what you're sharing with your audience. That's why I love your books is, you know, the, the wordsmithing is really good, but the experience is your experience. I want to live through your eyes. And so when I'm building these golf courses, that's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm, I have this two, three, four, five year journey with my best friends and new friends to create it. And so the end result, I, probably one of the best projects I ever did was in London that you've never heard of. And I, I'm not sure the golf course would rank as the best I've ever built. But the set of circumstances that happened while we were building it, we had an amazing time. One of my best friends, you know, uh, I, I met my wife on that project. We, uh, you know, a whole bunch of things that I could go on about that happened on that one project. So that, that becomes integral to my experience about which one is best not your experience, right? I, I I could pick one and you could say, well, the par threes are weak there. And I could say, yeah, but I met my wife there. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's totally different. And speaking of your wonderful wife, I'm glad you brought up Tara because I wanted to uh, speak about her for a second before uh, we wrap things up. Because at the Golfer's Journal this year, we're doing this exciting project called the Index Experiment where our members have had the chance to sort of set goals in golf lower your handicap get to scratch uh or or lose weight or win your club championship or 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 whatever it is 
uh, you know, we've we've set these bars for ourselves and for ourselves, and we're we're doing some sort of some community efforts to uh, to get there together. Uh, so this sort of communal improvement. But what I love about Tara has a great story about waking up one day and setting a pretty damn ambitious golf goal for herself. Can you tell us about uh, your wife's golf life? Because it blows me away. So this is before I met her, but she played uh, golf to a, a very high standard in England uh, as a teenage high schooler, teenager, uh, uh didn't decided not to pursue it. She was actually an excellent hockey and tennis player. Uh, her mother was England hockey captain, played at Wimbledon. So this, the family are extremely sporty. So golf was like her number three sport. Uh, but into her 20s, she suddenly uh, rediscovered golf. And at uh, like 26 or seven decided, okay, I want to get back into golf. I want to get to scratch in like a year and I want to turn pro, you know, right away. And so she put together a group of, uh, you know, a trainer, a nutritionist, uh, you know, a psychologist, a swing coach, you know, putting coach, all of it. She got like the 10 best people that she could get to believe in her mission. And within a year, sure enough, she was a scratch golfer and turned pro uh, and played on the European tour for a number of years. Uh, and she is, uh, how would I put it? When that girl sets herself a mission, she is target orientated. <laughs> so she gets focused like you would not believe. So uh, when we first met, uh, she was uh, still playing on the European tour and was raising money for uh, motor neuron disease, uh, Lou Gehrig's as it's called here. And her and Joel Cadbury were attempting to buy electric wheelchairs for sufferers in the UK because the health service only had finite resources and a lot of these people were dying before they even got a wheelchair. In the space of five years, uh, Tara and Joel had raised enough money to buy every single sufferer in a country of 60 million people a, an electric wheelchair. And these things oh are God. like $30,000 a pop. So oh, again, wow. when she is focused, that girl is focused. So I think she decided on like the second round after she beat me like a drum. She's like, okay, I think I'll marry this guy. <laughs> and, uh, and then it just took me a couple more years to figure out that I had to ask. <laughs> well, she's a very special person. And that is great inspiration. I think, you know, I, I, it sounds like something I did in paper tiger but uh the big uh, with a big difference in her story that she was playing on the european tour um after waking up one day and saying you know i'm gonna go do this uh it's it's fantastic um and she's great and she's with a little one uh that's probably the biggest change in your life since i've seen you last david uh which yeah, means i've seen because a... he's probably getting bigger now right yeah, he's almost three. And uh, here's the crazy thing Gosh. is we, we bought him a set of golf clubs and we've been taking him out on the course uh, a few times this year. This is probably the first season where he's big enough to actually hold it. Here's the weird thing. He can throw a perfect spiral with his right arm at almost three, but he swings a golf club left-handed. Interesting. So, wow. So his mother Sounds like a... is... is <laughs> Yeah, it sounds, sounds like, like a lefty, golfer we know. Uh, sounds like yeah. lefty, folks. So, 
So grandmother uh, wants to switch him to right, but but Tara and I want to keep him. If he wants to swing it left as a right-hander, we think that there's a lot of power in that. Wow. Yeah, no, there is. there is. Yeah, don't don't mess with him. It worked. Yeah, like you said, it worked for lefty. I can't let you go, David, without yeah. uh, letting you tell us your favorite golf course that you didn't design. You know, we asked you before, I asked you earlier about someone who's taught you a lot. What golf course has taught you the most? Well, for me, it's probably Macrahanish golf club the, yeah. the old macrahanish out on the west correct Coast of Scotland. answer you know, my my yeah my grandfather my father you know my cousins my uncles you know we all played there as kids uh you know my parents up until very recently had a house there uh so yeah it's a special special spot it taught me that there are no rules in golf course architecture. If there's a cool landscape and you can hit a golf ball at it, over it, through it, around it, uh, then it's fair play. You you can do, there are no rules. Uh, and Macrahanish teaches you that. You, you play the second hole into a taco green that's blind uphill over. Uh, and you think, there's no rules. I can do whatever I want. And the very next hole you're playing, you know, crucifix over another hole where you're shouting at the guy next to you as you play over one another so it's such a cool golf course uh, and i hearken back to that often in my head and think don't be limited don't put yourself in a box there there's so much that you can do that other people won't understand the people on the periphery that aren't in this business are going to poo poo it until you finish it and then hopefully they're going to go oh that's cool i knew that would work and that's what you that's and that's what you've done at a lot of places David and the best evidence of that being that one of the best places to view the links of Makrahanish are from the uh the David McClay kids suite at the old Yugadale. that's got to blow your mind to go back there that and does you know sound, now that cuz you you design Makrahanish dunes and uh yeah it's got to be pretty wild i remember you told me once you know that was like that hotel was for the you you didn't go Rich in there folk. Uh, as for the rich uh, folks no, and, and I, you I didn't had, go in there now. I had never been in it uh, until uh, <laughs> I got invited to build the second course and the developer bought it. I had never actually been in it. And my grandmother oh, always man. told me it was for the rich folks. Uh, and now the thing's fully renovated and the, the two suites are the Duke and Duchess of Argyle on one end of the mm -hmm. building and the David McClay kids suite at the other end of the building. Uh, I'm a little ticked off that the picture of me is in the bathroom. So my mother tells me when she stays there, she has to put a towel over it because somehow, <laughs> some way it just doesn't seem right that I'm looking down on her. No, no. Uh, yeah. I, I, that, uh, good to know folks. If you, uh, if when booking a room at the, at the Yuga yeah, I'm in the bathroom. But you should go. Yeah. David, David's in the bathroom waiting for you uh david can't thank you enough for the time you are such a busy man and we appreciate all you've done for the golfers journal i mean you probably i've quoted you in probably two or three stories uh you've been on the pod before you've been a part of my books as well um you're a, a great friend and I love it. just thank you for thank you for everything you do for golf most importantly uh you make people want to play more my, golf my absolute and, and that is great my absolute pleasure Thanks for listening, everyone. And if you enjoyed this episode, we strongly encourage you to become a member of the Golfer's Journal. Or if you already are, 
to please share it with your friends. As a reader-supported publication, we couldn't do it without you. We also couldn't do it without our partners, and they are, of course, Titleist, Scotty Cameron, Footjoy, Link Soul, Links and Kings, Charles Schwab, and BMW. See you next time on the Golfer's Journal podcast.